Episode 464, Training Periodization for Life, with world record holder, Dr. Derek Wilcox. The Awaken Your Alpha podcast, tracking down the finest alpha minds on the planet for you. I'm Adam Lewis Walker, host of the number one men's development podcast that is now a best-selling book, Awaken Your Alpha, Tales and Tactics to Thrive. And it is my mission to share you the real stories, the useful stuff, the juicy stuff, and the reality of what it takes to thrive do the little guy a favor, subscribe and review. It'll help get him off my back. This episode is sponsored by the Talk Accelerator. Increase your influence, income, and impact. If you've ever thought or dreamed or wondered what it would be like to do a TEDx talk, you can do that. So head over to talkxcelerator.com forward slash masterclass and you can get this completely free 45-minute training masterclass on how to become a TEDx speaker and thought leader in under 12 months without desperately chasing and wasting your time on the wrong opportunities. That training is brand new for 2021. You can jump over there. It really digs into the three key secrets to landing your own TEDx talk. Get an unfair advantage on the competition. All right, have a great week. Amplify your message and amplify your mission. Get to the podcast. Okay, enjoy the show. This week, we're gonna be talking all about high performance, periodization, training, nutrition. We're gonna see where it goes, but we've got Dr. Derek Wilcox on the line. He's a world record holder, strong man, and Highland Games competitor, and a coach of Renaissance periodization. So lots to talk about, excited to jump into this one. Derek, are you ready to awaken your alpha today? Absolutely, it's a pleasure to be here. Pleasure to have you. So that was quite a brief introduction by me. This interview could go in lots of ways to do with high performance. I know you've worked in lots of industries in this field. So is there anything you'd like to add or highlight? What are you all about at the moment? Well, uh, the biggest claim that I have in the strength sports world is I'm still, for some reason, still the smallest person to ever squat a thousand pounds. Uh, that seems oh. to be what I'm notified for the most. Um, I'm sure part of that has to do with the metric system, but you know, <laughs> I, I'll still gladly take that claim. Uh, some of my biggest heroes had that claim going up in powerlifting, so that's something I'm pretty proud of. Awesome! And when you say uh, uh, one of the smaller guys, are you how? I mean, I'm a, I say I'm a smallish guy. How how big are you? Is that in weight or height or how? how give us some dimensions. <laughs> it, it's purely what we weighed in at at the competition before we did the lift, and I weighed in at 194 pounds, which is just short of 90 kilos, about 88. Yeah. yeah, I think I'm around 80 kilograms, just under. I used to compete. I was lighter when I used to compete, but um, not in strongman. I was <laughs> so, <laughs> awesome. And uh, I just want to touch on your origins. Like, where are you coming from us today? Where are you originally from? And like, were you always into strongman? And just tell us a little bit about the journey in, in getting into this kind of line of work. Absolutely. I, I live in East Tennessee right now. Uh, this is where East Tennessee State University is, where I got my master's and my PhD in sport performance and physiology. I originally grew up in North Carolina, which is just one state over, in a very similar area. It's pretty rural in general, small town. But what got me into all these things, as far as sports goes, is my dad was always a really big sports fan, and he played sports growing up and coached as well. And for me, looking at my father, he's a single father, and I got to see him look at athletes with an immense reverence and respect. And, you know, as a son, looking at your dad, you kind of want to have that kind of respect and, you know, reference from your, your father. So I naturally went in that line of work and really was lucky to find my passion in it. 
what sports were you involved in? Because I don't really do like, you know, strong man at high school level or like, when did you go into that? Was that from just, you love the, the kind of the training for these different athletic pursuits? Was it, and when did you realize you was obviously very good? Well, I, when I was real young, I started playing normal American sports with basketball and football and baseball. I ran some track in high school. Uh, I've played golf since I was able to stand up. I guess it was a summer between eighth and ninth grade. I was able to start really working with barbells and dumbbells for the first time with some coaches for getting ready for football my freshman year of high school. And I was not strong. I remember getting crushed by a 60 kilo squat. So it, it definitely wasn't one of those magical, oh, I found weights and I'm just naturally good at this. Yeah. Definitely did not happen that way. Uh, I was actually born with a genetic joint condition called dysplasia. Most of the time you hear that about dogs that have been bred too much, but basically the joints are super open okay. and it causes a lot of dislocations. So as I was very thin, I was only about a hundred pounds, five foot nine, and I had to gain weight and add muscle around my joints to help stabilize them to avoid injuries. So that was one of the biggest benefits of lifting for me, but I was still trying to train for football and all the other sports I was doing, but I eventually figured out that I was not, always going to be the biggest guy on the field, especially with football, but I was also one of the slowest. So that didn't work out very well. <laughs> and I ended up just really falling in love with weightlifting so much more because I was, I was better at it and I enjoyed the process. I didn't have to depend on other people. It was all on me. So originally I started playing sports and then lifting weights to supplement it. And after a while to qualify for the advanced weight training class in school, I had to play the sports. So I was playing the sports so I could lift more. <laughs> awesome and when did you actually compete for the first time in you know strongman weight or was it weightlifting then strongman and highland games is always a fun thing to watch when did you get involved in that well the first competition at all was actually in high school and that's really where i got the bug i think i was a freshman or sophomore and they just invited another school to come lift against us we did bench press and some version of a clean. I don't even remember really what the, the rules were for yeah. it. I think you just couldn't drop it, but you could keep yanking on it until you pulled it up. <laughs> it, I'm sure it looked like a giant mess from the outside. <laughs> in. Yeah. It was so much fun. The, the atmosphere was incredibly intense. And what I really noticed was the mentality that that took you to with that kind of atmosphere. It pushed you to be better than you thought you could be. And it did the same thing for everyone else in the room. And that's to me the magic of strength sports because you're you're able to get pushed to that kind of level. Just a simple concept of self-improvement. It comes so much quicker when you have that intensity around you. Now, this sounds all like a nice progression, and we're going to talk about periodization. But when was a time in, in your life, your career, where you know you had a, a real big challenge or it was not, not the best time for you and you really had to sort of fight to awaken your alpha? Is there any periods where you, know, you had to overcome? Yeah, absolutely. Um, after I finished high school, I think a lot of people go through this, um, I really didn't know what I wanted to do. And I, I started in community college, just getting my general education courses so I could transfer and do something. But what the one constant in my life was always training. Ever since I was really a freshman in high school, I just had consistent training. And that's just, I was, just what I did. And I was able to put in work, see the results of that work, and know that it was going to continue that way if I kept putting in work. So that generally creates a good work ethic, builds character. You know, you can't take the time off if you just don't feel like it. You have to go in and be disciplined. And that really transfers to everything else in life. It gives you really a confidence 
that both psychologically and physiologically, due to hormone fluctuations and things like that, that really help a lot. But it gives you better tools to handle everything that comes at you in life. And that's one of the biggest things I really love about coaching is I can help people get to that same point. And it's not just about, oh, I lost 10 pounds and I look better. It's you have the tools now to go improve the rest of your life because you got the handle on this one thing and then the momentum starts going. Definitely. And uh, talking about the tools, what do you feel are some of the, the biggest mistakes people make in terms of training for an event or something or just, you know, trying to live a healthier lifestyle, like you say, so they can be, you know, in better shape for not just life, but the, their business, you know, their family, the whole thing. So what do you think are some big mistakes? You know, you're a doctor in this PhD that for you seem kind of common sense, but you see it happening quite a bit and you're just like, oh man, <laughs> what are some of the big mistakes? Really uh, looking for shortcuts hmm. because in the reality, there just aren't any. With changing your body, you just have to put in the work. There's no way around it. Um, you can look at all the magazine covers and see people that have dropped you know, 30 days and or 30 pounds in uh, 10 days or whatever celebrity they've got on the, the cover there. But there are all kinds of ways to manipulate that kind of information. There are different water cycles and diuretics that they're using, if it even happened at all. So we're kind of bombarded by these kinds of concepts of change your body fast. Here's the easy button. Just press it, and then you'll be where you want to be and it's really just not the case one of the biggest things that i've learned diving through all the research the sports science for the last hundred years or so is the same things work consistently forever and all the trends and fads that come along they come they go and we eventually figure out why they showed certain results at certain times and why normally like you know certain diets you have a big rebound afterward um we, we have a general rule of the quicker the, uh, the results come, the less permanent they are and vice versa. The slower you change your body, doing it consistently, doing it the right way, the more permanent those results are. Definitely. And in terms of some of the fundamentals, I mean, what are some of your sort of the core lifts that you like doing and even some of the warm-ups around that? Because, you know, I used to do track and field a lot. So we did a lot of Olympic lifting and, you know, when I, don't have I don't train nowhere near as much as, as time as I put in but I just always keep the fundamentals ticking over and do some core lifts and don't do loads of little things around it like I used to do I mean for you if, if someone's listening to this and they just want to get the foundation like you say just slow and steady what are some of the the core things you think they should be doing in this you know strength training arena well the things that have been proven to work basically since the beginning of time since we've been able to measure things anyway have been squats pulls and presses they're the absolute most basic movements for a reason because they've worked forever. Uh, all the fancy things that go around in and out, like the smaller movements that you were talking about, they can make you hurt. They can make you feel a burn. They can make you feel all kinds of weird ways. But most of the time when people are selling gimmick workouts and things like that, they're selling a feeling. Mm -hmm. If you do a movement incredibly slowly, it's going to burn. It's going to hurt, but it's also not going to do a whole lot. So they're selling you that feeling, but the results aren't necessarily going to come around. And when it comes to periodization, so again, where relevant, you can just distinguish between sort of like uh, an athlete in any kind of sport where they're being quite competitive. And then the average man who wants to stay in good shape and be able to do maybe like the weekend warrior type stuff or play sports with their kids with periodization. 
should even like the average guy who's trying to stay in shape, you know, what are your thoughts around periodization for, for life really? Because, you know, if you train hard all the time, then that's an issue. I mean, what are your thoughts around that and weeks off, lighter weeks? What are your thoughts around all of these strategy for a really, you know, like a year long approach to things? Yeah, definitely. Well, the prerequisite there is that you're training consistently and putting in good effort, like you said. Uh, but periodization, periodization is actually one of the biggest things that I picked up personally as an athlete from all the schooling that I did. And I'll be quite honest. I went to school for sport physiology and performance for completely selfish reasons. I was still very, very deep and dedicated to my powerlifting career. And so much of it, I was just trying to learn how to make myself a better athlete. But when you have a passionate endeavor and you go to try and educate yourself for that, you pick up things, you learn things, and it's ingrained because it means something to you. Periodization was one of those things that really ingrained in me because I knew that it, it really had great credence as far as how it worked and sustainability of it. So even for average Joe or Jane that's out there just plugging away in the gym like most of us are, um, you really do want to have a longer term plan. You don't want to go in, do random things and leave because eventually you will plateau because there's just no real system to it. Your body adapts to certain things. And if you just do all kinds of different things all at once, kind of throwing the kitchen sink at it, so to speak, then your body doesn't necessarily have anywhere to progress. So yeah. one of the key concepts for me in periodization is we train specific qualities, like high reps, for instance, start with tens. Everybody does tens in the gym. That's great. If you do tens for one, for one block, four weeks, even up to eight weeks with different exercises, you get adapted to that kind of rep range. Physiologically, there's certain signalings going on. The load and intensity is a certain level. So you're going to get the most out of that particular stimulus to your body. Now, if you move away from that, you go to fives. You're not going to be adapted to fives at all. You've gotten tens really good. But what most people don't think about is while you're training something really specific here, you're also creating a sensitivity to the next thing that you're training. So that's how you actually avoid plateaus. You're not just training one thing to get really good at it. You're training specifically to make sure that you have a sensitivity to the next thing that you're going to be training, which is different enough to where it's going to cause a new stimulus to create progress, but not too different to where it just wrecks your body completely. Yeah. And what are your thoughts on, uh, you know, the recovery aspects, both in literally on a, on a weekly basis or even shorter than that? And then in, if you're looking at a year long kind of block, as it were, recovery and for the, the average Joe and for, you know, a competitive athlete. Absolutely. Uh, as far as recovery goes, we, uh, I think a lot of people have seen the, the gas models, general adaptation syndrome model. So basically what that shows is over a timeline, you train and you have a suppression of your ability to perform. So the line dips down. And then as you recover, the line starts coming back up and eventually you're above baseline when you have your training adaptations. But for that to actually happen, you have to recover, right? So you can't just stay fatigued all the time and continue to get better. If you stay fatigued and you overtrain, you just train too heavy too often, you just keep beating your body up, you open yourself up to injuries. The long-term sustainability of that is not good. So you either get hurt or you just continue to get weaker. So having higher intensity sessions combined with lower intensity in sessions to make sure that all those adaptations are coming is super, super important. Yeah. And just to, to give examples for people listening, when do you think people should have either 
a light week or a rest week or how often I know this stuff gets very specific to the individual and sport and whether they are doing a sport, but what are your thoughts around that? Just to give people some ideas as well. Yeah, absolutely. The, for more advanced athletes, uh, they adapt to training quicker, whether it's genetics or just their training age in general. They're so good at what they do and super coordinated and specific. They can usually train for about three weeks before you stop really getting good adaptations from it. As I'm just ramping up intensity over the course of those weeks as well. But generally a fourth week, sometimes a fifth week, you need to take some downtime to allow those all the damage to recover and those adaptations to start occurring. It's actually what my dissertation was on for the most part, working with a power lifter. Uh, we actually took athlete monitoring measures as far as grip tests and bench press velocity tests, you know, performance measures. And we can track these things and after, it's gonna sound super, super crazy. Nobody would have ever thought. After the heaviest training, those measures went down. After he was able to recover for a couple of weeks, they spiked up to the highest that they would be the entire time during that period. So there really is something to having those higher intensity times and lower intensity times. And normally we have heavy days and light days in the same week, but we just continue waving intensities up and down to make sure recovery comes along and those adaptations occur. What would you say would be some, some markers for someone who's listening to this to, that, that maybe they are overtraining or, you know, that this, whether it's, you know, they're getting ill quite often or they just feel lethargic. I mean, any signs that people can be, you know, looking out for if they're working by themselves ultimately? There are definitely immune responses or a lack of immune responses that cause you to get sick if you are fatigued a lot. Uh, we actually saw that in my dissertation as well. All those measures dropped about a week before my athlete knew he was sick. So if you actually monitor those things really well as a professional in any sport, uh, you can actually start being proactive and help get your athlete to be healthier along those lines. But if you go to the gym and you're lifting the same weights and they're just not moving that well, you might be overtrained. Uh, a lot of times sleep goes into that. Sleep quality actually goes down when you are super fatigued because of the stress hormones being so much higher than your anabolic hormones. Mm. So that might be one of those things to look out for as well. And you have a general feeling of kind of depression comes along with that super fatigue. Uh, if you start feeling that way consistently, you just feel beat up. There's nothing wrong with just backing off training, even if it's not in the right time in the plan. Uh, a lot of times that can save you injuries and other issues down the road. So when it comes to your own competing and, you know, getting a world record lift for your size and your weight, what is the other side of things in terms of the sacrifice on your body that was needed to compete at that level? And how, how long were you really in that kind of shape? And was it sustainable and, and kind of, how did your body or did your body break down around kind of that, you know, pushing right to the limit ultimately? Absolutely. Basically, everybody's going to break down at some point when you're going at 100% for a very long time. Uh, the genetic joint issues that I mentioned earlier, that really told me that the, the clock was ticking as far as that goes. With the instability in my joints due to the hypermobility from that condition, I knew the cartilage was going to be wearing down much faster than a normal person's cartilage would. Just because, you know, the joint and ball and socket, for instance, that ball is going to be shaking inside the socket a lot more. So it just grinds down the tissue. And I'm definitely paying for it today a little bit. I had to stop mainly because of my hips. I had five cortisone shots in both my hips. Whoa. And how old were you when you did that lift? Uh, the thousand pound lift. Let's see, that was six years ago. I'm 33 now, so around 27 or so. 27. Okay. Yep. 
Most yeah, people I know for strong men as well, sometimes their peak when strengths can come, you know, in their thirties and even later, can't it? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you start getting what's uh, referred to as old man strength. Your, your <laughs> yep. connective tissue starts maturing and it gets a little bit stiffer. It does open you up to injuries a little bit more, but the force transfer from the connective, from the actual contractile tissue in the muscle through the tendons and things like that gets much more efficient. So one of those instances where you shake an old man's hand that's worked in the mines for 50 years, yep. you know, it can basically crush your hand if he wants to. It's just so strong. But those, I didn't really get to take advantage of that. I was able to get in and get out with the goals that I'd set. I wanted to compete at the absolute highest level and I wanted to break a world record. Uh, something I'd wanted to do since I was a very small child. I actually carried the, the list of the all-time world record numbers in my notebook in high school and I'll just look at it and try to figure out how can I get on this? And it was a <laughs> lifelong goal and I was yeah. lucky enough to achieve it. Cool, and with that, did you, was that kind of always the goal? You were aware that you were likely gonna get out earlier or did you have, a, some thoughts of getting this old man strength and continuing on as a lot of strong men do, or did, was that quite a tough decision to step away ultimately like the peak for you? Well, in high school, I actually had a lot of injuries because of my condition. I had seven shoulder dislocations and my right hip dislocated twice as well. Oh man. So I obviously had to go see a surgeon about that. And he looked at all my imaging and said, well, we can, have surgery on your shoulders, tighten everything up. You'll be laid up for six months. And based on the shape of your joints, you're going to have exactly the same chance of it happening again. And I said, okay, well, I guess we're not doing surgery. And I said, well, what? I'm just open to go back to normal activity. And he said, I wouldn't recommend contact sports or heavy lifting at all. You're going to be looking at joint replacements by the time you're in your mid thirties. And so I did end up stopping contact sports a couple of years later because I could just bump into someone and my shoulder would come out of place. Oh, it's horrible. Yeah. No, but it, it helped me push me in the right direction. I did not need to be out on the field doing those things. I kind of wish I would have stopped earlier so I could have lifted for a little bit longer, really. Yeah. But I, I knew the clock was ticking because of what he said, the joint replacements coming. And I'd kind of made my peace with it to a certain degree. And after you have five cortisone shots in your hips with you know needles that are about eight inches long, because you know, my legs are pretty thick then, yeah. um, they repeatedly didn't use a long enough needle to numb it, because you're having to take a needle all the way down into the hip joint. Ugh. And you know they take that big needle in there after everything was supposed to be numb, and then I would squirm, and they'd know that they had to do it all over again. <laughs> I got really tired of that process, yeah. and walking like I was 90 years old. Yeah, jeez. <laughs> We're going to move into the alpha round now. I'd like to start off with, is there a particular favorite quote that you like to really live your life by, or maybe the sort of thing you might have up in your office? Does anything spring to mind? It's hmm, a good question. Uh, one that I've probably used a lot recently is do not demand what you can't take by force. Okay. Do you want to uh, explain that? that? has yeah. a lot to do. With, <laughs> yeah, I know it's pretty intense out here, right? Um, it has so much to do with your personal responsibility, at least in my eyes. Um, you can't just go to someone else and demand that they treat you a certain way. And it's not about violence or anything like that. It's, you know, you can't force someone to behave a certain way. You kind of have to earn their respect in whatever regard that comes, if it comes. And you have to respect it if it doesn't come. But it's one of those things that in life, 
you know, don't overstep your bounds, kind of know your limits in that way, but also don't underestimate what you could do potentially. And when it comes to book recommendations, has there been an all time sort of favorite impactful book for you? Maybe one you just read at the right time. And if it's not in this sort of world we've been discussing, is there a book that, you know, is, is really useful resource and maybe not just for the PhD who's studying this, but someone's like, actually, there's a lot of useful information in that. Any spring to mind? <laughs> this one will actually be pretty off topic, but my undergrad ended up being in religious studies and psychology. Yeah. And one of my favorite books that I read there was called Terror Management Theory. And it never heard of it that one. Actually, yeah. uh, it actually talked about how they were able to do research and quantify how people view people of other world views. And when they were confronted with those things, especially reminded, you know, in the research, they actually had mental imaging that reminded them that they would die one day. So it, it intensified a lot of the, the responses personality wise. And it showed you had a greater tendency for violence of people when you didn't agree with what their worldview was. And it kind of opened my eyes about how to treat other people and to have empathy. Because um, gratefully, uh, or thankfully, I've been able to work with people all over, all over the world now. And being able to get out of the tiny bubble that I was in when I was growing up in a really, really small rural town, uh, it's just opened my eyes so much because there's so much hate and violence in the world and just venom passed back and forth, regardless if it's politics or religion or whatever. But there's so much common ground to be had. We just have to overcome those kind of natural instincts and be aware of it. Yeah. Was there a book around, you know, training and what we've been discussing? Are there any good books you think actually that's quite a good resource? Well, it's hard to beat uh, Strength Conditioning Essentials by Dr. Mike Stone and Meg Stone and Bill Sands. That was one of our primary textbooks in grad school and it's it's no BS. It's yeah. straight to the point and it's all about what works. No filler. Yeah. That's the book that I had. Cause uh, yeah, that's that. I haven't heard that book mentioned for years and years and years, but that's the book that a uh, resource that even I was aware of. Blimey. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The, um, <clears throat> just like I mentioned with the lifts, the basics always work and it's filled with exactly what works. Yeah. And plus I, I was able to be under Dr. Mike Stone for, for five years. He, he, I feel like I have a special kind of relationship with him because he would be in lifting and he's in his seventies now. And he would always call me over to spot him on his squats. He'd be still be squatting over a hundred kilos, but I was able to go spot him because he knew I was a power lifter. I had the good technique for keeping him safe, but to see him go in and still work as hard as he possibly could. And it's respect for me is never about the number that's on the bar. It's all about the percentage of effort that you give. Yeah. and how well you prepare and all the discipline related things that man has it in spades and it, it was really incredible to learn under awesome well i mean on that note is there any having gone through the bulk of the interview now is there anyone from your network that you think would be a great interview for awakening your alpha give some value anyone spring to mind well honestly uh, dr jen case i think that she is a pretty amazing person she's a multi-time world champion in jujitsu um, and she's also a PhD in nutrition. And she's, she understands what it means to compete at the highest level in the world internationally, as well as being extremely educated. I think she'd definitely be an interesting talk for you. Awesome. And if people want to continue the conversation, what's the best way to connect with you and follow up? Uh, on Instagram, I'm at Wilcox Strength Inc. Twitter is Wilcox Strength. And you can find my 
profiles on Facebook, Derek Wilcox, or just Wilcox Strength Inc. there as well. Awesome. And having gone through this interview, is there anything you wished I'd asked, you thought I was going to ask, and you feel like we haven't really given you an opportunity to share your expertise? Is there anything like words of wisdom you want to leave people with? Really, just take responsibility for yourselves because nobody else will. Nobody else really should, uh, unless you are incapable of doing so. You know what I mean? Um, once I think people cross that threshold of accepting most of the things that happen to you, generally it's from what you do. There are things that are out of your control, learn to let go of those and work with what you do have control over, which is your response to them. And once you cross that threshold, I think the sky's the limit for everyone. Well, thank you, Derek, for your time today. It's been an absolute pleasure. My pleasure. The Awaken Your Alpha podcast, tracking down the finest alpha minds on the planet for you. Please do subscribe, reach out, connect, pick up a copy of Awaken Your Alpha, Thousand Tactics to Thrive, available on Amazon. This episode is sponsored by the Talk Accelerator. Increase your influence, income, and impact. If you've ever thought or dreamed or wondered what it would be like to do a TEDx talk, you can do that. So head over to talkxcelerator.com forward slash masterclass and you can get this completely free 45-minute training masterclass on how to become a TEDx speaker and thought leader in under 12 months without desperately chasing and wasting your time on the wrong opportunities. That training is brand new for 2021. You can jump over there. It really digs into the three key secrets to landing your own TEDx talk. All right, have a great week. Amplify your message and amplify your mission. Do the little guy a favor. Subscribe and review. It'll help get him off my back.